You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Wednesday, June the 29th, dull dreary day here in TW11. Bit of drizzle in the air as well. If you were with us yesterday, you'll have heard me discussing the gambling review and the imminent white paper with Neil Channing. Uh, There was some contention in racing whether this white paper would appear before or after the parliamentary recess on July the 22nd. Uh, The Times has gone with the former on the front page today, saying Boris Johnson poised to announce curbs on online gambling in an effort to stem the catastrophic, in inverted commas, impact of addiction on people's lives. Ministers will publish a review of the 17-year-old gambling legislation amid concerns that it's been rendered outdated by the explosion in popularity of online betting. And political editor Stephen Swinford goes on to outline much of what we brought you yesterday on this podcast. The one significant difference being that the Whitehall leaked to the Times appears to suggest that uh, advertising on football shirts has been significantly rode back on, but there'll be a, a backlash and you'd have thought that that might go around again. Anyway, it doesn't look as though we were too far from the mark on the podcast yesterday. Uh, news on the track, or closer to the track, a very elegant, the Australian superstar. She's set to make a European debut, according to trainer Francis Graffold, in the pre-Rothschild at Deauville over a mile. We still await news whether Royal Ascot heroine in Spiral will go to the Falmouth Stakes next week. We suspect that she will, though no decision has been made yet formally on who is going to ride her in the wake of the uh, split or sabbatical between Dottori and Gosden. That's still under discussion, we gather. Uh, and Bay Bridge, the rider uh, for the Eclipse, we've been assuming was Ryan Moore until Richard Kingscote was jocked up on the horse. But we now gather, courtesy of the Sun, that uh, this is uh, Kingscote just waiting on whether Ryan Moore is uh, going to be claimed by Aidan O'Brien for the ride on that. All that to come a little bit later on with Jane Mangan. Uh, first of all, though, let's head you back to the weekend and that um, farce in Ireland with Ross Carberry, the third-placed filly in the Pretty Polly Stakes, being demoted because her rider failed to weigh in correctly. Uh, Paddy Toomey uh, joins me on the line now, her trainer. He also won the race, of course, with La Petite Coco. Uh, Paddy, you've had a bit of time for the dust to settle. What are you going to do? Um, so uh, the, the deadline for lodging an appeal against the, what happened to Ross Carberry on Sunday was 5 o'clock yesterday evening, so my solicitors lodged an appeal, or, yeah, lodged a applied for an appeal process there yesterday afternoon if we are to uh if we have any chance to be reinstated uh in third place where i think we rightfully belong uh the only way of doing that is through the appeal process so my read of it and is if we passed if we passed five o'clock yesterday that would have been that option would have been gone so you, you have to go through the motions and you you have to appeal now because she Absolutely. did because she carried nine stone seven and it may have been completely not your fault or Wayne Lorden's fault um I can't see a way objectively of, of how you get it back um, that that's just that's just the way I'm looking at it objectively but what I what I am wondering is if you go through those motions and you don't have any success whether you can then consider some sort of civil action is that an, an avenue you'd go down absolutely look it's it's an error on the part of the ihrb it's the, the basically that it's it's a 
it's a they're not fit for purpose on the day um and uh, they sent the man out to racing they gave me a saddle they null they null invited the the horse's chance from the minute i picked the saddle up from the jockey after the clerk of the scales okay them to go philly's race was over you know she never really ran after that you know so and as you say, your owner has stumped up €30,000, which is a not inconsiderable amount of money. Just going back to, to actually how this happened, there's all sorts of suggestions as, as to what it might have been. It, it might just be worth you clarifying exactly from your position that that sequence of events, just to leave nobody in any doubt that you could have dropped a weight cloth or you could have you know, you know, could have mislaid something or in your hurry you could have got the saddles mixed up or anything like that. That's certainly not the case. As... As we descri- as I described extensively there, it's written in the press, and I talked to you uh, on Sunday. The sequence of events, as I outlaid on the day, was what happened. Um, whether the clerk of the scales made the error himself or the computer made it is irrelevant. Uh, it's a, an employee of the IHRB has made the mistake. It looks a very archaic system where, obviously, it's coming up in pounds, uh, stone and pounds on the race card, which is an obsolete... Uh, system we should have a metric system and when he's weighing out the jockey then it comes up on the screen in pounds only so there's loads of room for error when a human being is there and it's nine stone 12 and it's 138.1 pounds i mean if somebody makes any mistake they can make it it should be in kilos where it will come up the jockey's weight in kilos and the scales would uh, reflect that in kilos. It's uh, We live in 2022, we live in Europe, we have a metric uh, system for weighing things, and I think that the IHRB are, you know, operating in a in a, a bygone age. And in, in, terms of, in terms of the filly's own future, where's the next opportunity for her to get some, some Group 1 placed form, do you think? Sure, I guess now she's now that she's Group One placed, she has a uh, Lily Langley entry, which is Group Two, but she has a Yorkshire Oaks entry, and uh, you know we're just going to have to follow the program. But but you know there is a chance she might never be Group One placed again, and and, and that will have a huge bearing on her future. Um, I, I heard a, a few people saying, "Go that Paddy Toomey's a miserable bugger. He just won a Group One, and he wasn't very excited after after La Petite Coco won." I think somebody had just whispered something in your ear just before you spoke to me, hadn't they? Yeah, you know, I I just uh, as we were talking, uh, uh, you know, I I heard the clacks and I knew what was going on, and I was quite upset because uh, I saw the error being made. You know, uh, retrospectively, when when I heard the clacks and I heard it, I knew that there was confusion beforehand, and I had a feeling it wasn't going to end well. Yeah, so you were you were quite worried about it. I mean, you've had a chance to reflect on the on the win of your filly as well, and Billy Lee's been talking about it quite quite a bit since, and. Uh, this Arc de Triomphe plan sounds a sounds a, a very exciting one. Is is that the that's the target, and you just work back from there? Look, I I gave her the entry there in the spring, and uh, Le Petit Coco is a highly talented filly. Uh, she's never put a foot wrong, you know, since she came to me, and uh, she keeps her she keeps her best work for the track. Um, in the morning, she just goes through the motions, and uh, you know, but every time she gets in a battle. Uh, you know she's 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 hard to get by. She's she's hard to deal with for other horses, and uh, you know she's honest and she's straightforward and she's talented. And uh, a mile and a half on on easier ground, I think, is probably her optimum thing. And you know she hasn't raced against Colts 
Under, oh, she has actually in, in a winner's race. I apologise. She's raced against Coles once in a winner's race, but on the whole, at stakes level, she has not raced against Coles. Uh, so that will be something that later in the year, that you know, if she, if she continues to progress like she has done, that I'd like to explore. And it's not as though you're a Johnny come lately. Everyone knows you're a very good trainer now with an extremely high strike rate. But how important is a is her, is she as a marquee horse to really to launch you on that international stage and to sort of put your name in lights to people who you know who haven't been following the stable that closely? I oh, look. I think she's very important. I think every good horse. I think every trainer needs every good horse that, that comes their way. You have to be lucky enough that they come through the doorway, and when they do come through the doorway, you know you. Have, you're privileged to have them and and they give you exposure on an international stage and uh, look uh, myself and billy and everybody here enjoy competing at the highest level uh there's a great thrill racing on big days and uh, i'd like to do more of it paddy to me there jane mangan is with me this morning jane we knew paddy wasn't very happy but we've got a clearer sense now of the of the direction of travel here for sure um number one it must be uh, it just leaves such a sour taste after he winning his first Group 1. That should be a day of elation, a night of celebration, and all those different emotions you go through as somebody who's basically self-made and, and, and reached the pinnacle of their career, only to literally, in a, in, in a matter of moments, have it taken away. And, and not taken away in that the Group 1 winner doesn't stand, because, of course, La Petite Coco... Uh, is our Pretty Polly winner of 2022. But the Ross Carberry ding-dong, when the klaxon sounded at the Curra, I think we all turned our heads. We thought there was no interference in running. We were wondering what this weight issue might be. And legitimately, you automatically assume that there's been a fault, um, whether it be with the saddling procedures or somewhere between weighing out and weighing back in. But never in my lifetime have I come across a situation that happened on Sunday where it seems the IHRB scales or the clerk of the scales uh, was negligent. Now, it would have to happen in a group one. You know, all the races that are run throughout the year and of course it would happen, have to happen to a filly in a group one just has to be the most important of all. And I'm not surprised that Paddy and his, and his owners, uh, Robert Moran, have decided to take this course of action because it's, uh, it's a huge blow to them. It's a huge value for the filly. Not only we're t- talking about the thousand euro supplementary fee, the prize money of thirty thousand as well for third place. But how do you put a value on Group One place on a filly's pedigree? It's uh, it's 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 difficult to know where to even draw the line because it's not just Ross Carberry's pedigree, but it's his her mother uh, Rose Rise, the breeder of Ross Carberry, the people who have branches of that family. It's a never-ending story, this, and uh, I'll be following it closely. Yeah, I mean, clearly, it's going to be unlikely, as I as I said. Um, he has to hope that he, he has some sort of way of, of, of getting his third place back on, on appeal. He doesn't, to my mind, because the filly carried 9-7, and she should have been carrying 9-12. That would be manifestly unfair on all the others. But but you do think that they, they've got to have grounds, if they can prove that, that it, it wasn't Paddy or, or Wayne Lorden at fault, and, and they assure us that it wasn't, then they've surely got to have some reasonable claim for civil case and, and compensation. Yes, if they can, I would imagine, sue for damages and, and get uh, 
awarded accordingly, but the, the, their legal team will be busy trying to put a value on this because if you take, for instance, uh, Turret Rocks, who won the, the Pretty Polly a couple of years ago, her first fall on a Kingman, Age of Kings, he went to the sales as a yearling and made 1.1 million. Did he make that value because his mother was group one placed or because she was a, a group winner? Did he make that value because he was by Kingman? And if you follow up to last year, it was won by Kay and Pepper. She went to the sales. She won, or she made two million. Did she make two million because she was group one place, or did she make two million because she was a, a group two winner? It's, um, you know, we can throw out all these valuations, but I'm sure his legal team will be on it. And if they are going to put a valuation forward, I'd imagine it won't be on the conservative side. Now, talking of the value of pedigrees, there was a very interesting piece in the Thoroughbred Daily News yesterday. Emma Berry interviewed Bjorn Nielsen, the owner-breeder of Stradivarius. The headline that's been taken by just about everyone is Nielsen talking about Dottori's ride on the horse. Ask it, you can understand that. But to my mind, Jane, the interesting part of this article was actually what Bjorn Nielsen wants to do with the horse at stud, which is to stand him as a stallion. He realizes that his commercial... Uh, appeal is limited such as su- such as the way things are now but he said there are a couple of studs that are interested he thinks he's going to have to support him with mo- quite a few of his own mares that he's either got or that he acquires and he has said that he will only cover flat mares unlike most stairs on the flat he doesn't he's no interest in covering national hunt mares to try and build his book up uh, how, how do you read this and has he got any shot of making Stradivarius a success as a stallion, in your opinion? He has, because he's being realistic and he knows that it'll be an uphill battle. He knows that he will probably have to keep 100% equity himself because nobody else will be uh, enticed to invest. He knows that he's had limited interest from flat studs. He initiated that, or he inferred that he had offers from France and Germany. None from Ireland were mentioned in this piece. Um, and that he had some from the UK, but he'd almost certainly have to maintain uh, 100% ownership. He quite rightfully outlined the attractiveness. He, while the commercial side of it, and he's realistic as to what the modern market wants, he said soundness and durability, temperament, combined with ability is exactly the attributes that this horse has that people should be breeding for. Um, but he understands why people are, are not doing that. And if you look at what, so this horse has stayed in training as an eight-year-old. If you look at what he's actually earned as a racehorse alone. So everybody knows the figures of 20 wins from 34 runs, seven of them at group one level, but 3.3 million in prize money plus two Weatherby's Hamilton stairs bonuses. So he's earned 5.3 million on the track, which is extremely rare for a horse racing almost exclusively in Britain. Um, and he points to the fact that one of the leading influences in the world, not just in Europe or Japan, but in the world is Deep Impact, who won all his 12 races from 10 furlongs to two miles. So it's a fashionable market. He probably understands or he, he seems to understand that those who will be breeding to Stradivarius won't be breeding for the sales ring, that they will be breeding to race and hopefully produce future Stradivariuses. But to get a quality book and to get a big book, he's probably going to have to attract the owner breeders because if you and me are trying to breed to make a profit at the sales ring, the sales ring is a 
caustic place to be if your sire is winning over two and a half miles. Well, it's not so much that he's, he's winning over two and a half miles. It's more the fact that he couldn't win a top flight race at a mile and a half. Isn't, isn't that the truth? It, Japan reveres stamina perhaps over any other major major breeding nation and look how well they've done because of it and I, i'm in fully in admiration of bjorn nielsen's loyalty to his horse and and all the qualities that he describes but it, even a even a horse like yates admittedly who's made most of his money covering national hunt mares he was able to win a coronation cup over a mile and a half order of st george third in an arc Th- this horse hasn't really got any form over even a mile and a half so that that lack of, I'm not saying he lacked speed because he he's got a turn of foot. We know that. We know that because we see it and you know, the sectional times show it. But he doesn't have on his CV a notable performance, even in the realms of what we would call middle distance. And I, I, see, I can't therefore see how he is in any way appealing to, to any flat breeder in reality. I think it's probably right. He's not that suitable as a national hunt stallion because he doesn't have the size. He's a horse who connections say wants quickish ground, so that's not ideal either. And you know, national hunt people like big bay horses, and they're not going to get a big bay horse by Stradivarius. So, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm in full admiration of what Bjorn Nielsen's trying to achieve. I just don't know how he's going to achieve it. it yeah, it, I, I get the the lack of mile and a half um, class form, and I think when he tried to run and. You know, when you tried him in the arc, it, it was a messy arc. He was, he was seven behind Sutsas. Yeah, he went and it was, a, and it, was a bog. It, it was a bog. But I was, I'm even looking at his, he, you know, he was, he was well beaten when they tried to run him over a mile and a half in the, in the jockey club stakes at Newmarket. But it's funny, you can't, like, you can't legitimately say he's slow because I can't remember in my lifetime a horse that can turn it on two furlongs down after running two miles and, and leave everything else. It's it's not like those stairs you see where they grind the opposition into submission by just burning them off. This this horse had that change of gear, but it, it's uh it's it's almost refreshing that as an owner breeder Bjorn has taken such a strong viewpoint on this because it's only last Sunday or last Saturday I was trying to defend why the Irish Derby should remain at a mile and a half on our national broadcaster because. You know, Ireland uh, in particular has been at the forefront of the breeding industry because we've been excellent at producing brilliant middle distance horses. And just because the market is suggesting that we should be getting quicker, should we change everything that we're good at to facilitate that market? So I admire the man for what he's trying to do. I'm not going to say he's going to be successful in his endeavours, but I'll be interested to see how it goes. Yeah, it would be wonderful if if he could produce a top-notch Group 1 flat horse by Stradivarius. It would, it would send a great message for sure. Uh, I wish him well with that project. And on a related theme, Jane, there's a, a, an equally interesting piece by Martin Stevens in today's Racing Post talking to Dr. Emmeline Hill, the well-known geneticist and fertility researcher in, in thoroughbred racehorses, uh, talking about the negative impact of inbreeding. If you were listening to the podcast yesterday, you'll have heard Imad Al-Sagar, the breeder of the uh, Prida Diane winner, Nashua, saying how he was trying to maintain rarefied bloodlines in his pedigrees to try and strengthen his breed. And it seems from what Emmeline Hill has researched that he's, he's got the right idea. 
it is proven from this study that horses with the highest levels of DNA measured inbreeding, as opposed to what might be summarized from a tabulated pedigree, had a 13% lower probability of ever competing in a race. It has also long been known that inbreeding has a negative consequence for an animal, as harmful mutations can accumulate in the genome. That has been shown in other species, such as cattle, where uh, inbreeding has unfavorably affected traits such as fertility, growth, and production, and in dogs, where inbreeding has led to chronic health conditions. So Dr. Emmeline Hill is with me now. Um, Dr. Hill, the one question I was really interested in is, if I look at a pedigree and I see you've got Saddlers Wells, three back in the top generation and two back in the bottom generation, and I think, well, that horse is more inbred than horse B, who's got relatives further back in the pedigree, it seems that your research doesn't necessarily say that's the case, or there's actually a scientific differentiation. Just Can you just explain a bit more for the layman? Yeah, sure. So um, when we look at inbreeding measured from the DNA of a horse, um, we're actually looking at the um, shared parts of the genome, or the parts of the genome that have been identically inherited from the sire and the dam. Um, and then we uh, add up all of those bits that are shared identically, um, inherited from the sire and the dam, to get a percentage level of similarity. Um, and that's what we call inbreeding, um, in, in, in uh, genomic inbreeding. That's different from pedigree inbreeding, and we've seen that. We've, we've looked at the, uh, the correlation of the relationship between pedigree estimated levels of inbreeding and genomic inbreeding, and um, it doesn't always um, it doesn't always correlate very well. In fact, it doesn't correlate very well at all. And the reason for that is that. Pedigrees nowadays are um, quite similar. We don't have the same resolution that we might have had back in the day where there was wide variation in the gene pool or wide variation in, in pedigrees. And we know in the thoroughbred that um, there's a very high level of genetic relatedness. Um, and so that, I suppose, that lack of resolution um, now is seen in this, uh, I suppose, difference in the um, actual measured inbreeding level that we can see in the DNA and um, what is assumed from the pedigree. So in order for us to try and breed a racehorse that has that percentage chance of making it to the race course, that stronger percentage chance of making it to the race course because they are physically more robust and less compromised by genomic inbreeding, does that really necessitate a, a, a proper DNA study of, of, of each, uh, each and every prospective parent? Well, unless you have very, very clear... Um, outcrosses, the stallions that are very clear outcrosses. In, in other words, they're you know really known to be very different. Um, yes, but it will be challenging to to do that without the genetics um, part of it because it just gives you that much finer resolution that um, that, that that you can't get from the pedigree. So the best way to um, to examine relatedness between animals is to look at the relatedness on the basis of, of, of a DNA sample. Um, and the best way to measure um, inbreeding in an individual um, to, 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 I suppose, assess 
it's um, potential for racing or a viability for racing is um, from the DNA. So really, I, I, I think what we're seeing now is that this, this limitation of or um, reduction in the variation in sire lines is really having a, an effect on that. Um, but, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible to use the pedigree to give you some level of an indicator. But uh, really, the best way to evaluate um, relatedness to look for outcross stallions to reduce that um, inbreeding in potential progeny um, and produce more viable uh, horses for racing is to use genetic information. So I spoke to Imad Al-Sagar, as I was saying yesterday on the podcast, and he was saying he was trying to maintain some of those older sire lines in, in his pedigrees for, for this very reason. I mean, you'd say that's a, that's a good idea. That's the, that's the first starting point. Absolutely. I think maintaining any variation in the gene pool now is critically important. I mean, we've seen the trends over the years, increase in inbreeding. Up until now, we didn't know if that trend in increasing inbreeding was... Um, positive, negative, or having no effect at all. But now, with our new research, we've shown that actually higher levels of inbreeding does have a negative effect on the breed. Um, not only in the population as a whole, but on individual animals. And that is, uh, I suppose, a critical factor in thinking about individual um, animal health and, and welfare. Um, it's also critical to consider it in the context of um, economic returns for breeders because. You know, everybody wants to lead a horse that can actually race. Um, but in, I suppose in the broader scheme of things, in terms of the sort of overall population um, health for the future, the genetic health of the population for the future, we now know that actually if efforts to lower inbreeding and maintain genetic diversity in the population should have a positive impact. All right, continuing our build-up to Saturday's Coral Eclipse at Sandown Park. Jane, I've been speculating this week as to whether Ryan Moore would end up on Bay Bridge. Richard Kingscote has now been jocked up on the horse in the, in the papers, but he explained to Callum Jameson of The Sun last night, who tweeted, that he was on standby uh, just in case Ryan Moore was, was claimed to ride by, by Aidan O'Brien. It, it's still not confirmed that Kingscote will, will definitively ride, and we don't know whether Aidan's actually going to run any of, his, any of his three horses or not. So, still Ryan Moore's ride, unless Aidan um, asks him to ride one of his. Yeah, Richard Kingscote is a very understanding guy, and he knows his position with Sir Michael Stout. I sat with him on your show the morning after he won the Epsom Derby, and he quite easily and fluently said that Desert Crown is Ryan Moore's ride unless he's unavailable. You know, that that's the kind of understanding that he has, and Aidan O'Brien hasn't made his final decisions, and as he tends to do he's going to wait until the very last minute to see whether he'll have a runner in the Carl Eclipse. I would expect him to have something. I would imagine Stone Age might be that runner. They mentioned dropping him back on trip after he was well beaten at Epsom. But I think it's not about that horse this weekend. I think it's about Vedeni. Um and Jean-Claude Rouget has supplemented him for the race and it's a wonderful addition to the race. I saw somewhere last night that the Aga Khan has not had a winner in on British turf since Harzan's Epsom Derby win in 2016. Now he hasn't had many runners, if any, 
Vedeni. But Vedeni looked really awesome in the Prix de Jockey Club and with Sumi on board, he'd be very hard to beat. But throw in Mishriff, the heavyweight champion, throw in Native Trail, the three-year-old, and, and Baybridge, fresh from Ascot as well. This has uh, all the ingredients to be a vintage renewal. Well, this time last year, we were fully expecting Mishriff to win the Coral Eclipse. And in the end, he needed the run and was beaten by St. Mark's Basilica. Uh, this time round, in spite of his extraordinarily illustrious career, which includes that romp in last year's Judmont International, he seems to be the forgotten horse. He hasn't run since disappointing in this year's Saudi Cup. His regular rider is David Egan. Uh, David, tell me a little bit about his, his preparation over the last couple of weeks. I gather you've been riding him this morning. Yeah, I sat up this morning and I rode him uh, twice last week. He um, seems in good form. He's uh, obviously had a nice break since Saudi and his uh, his build-up has been sort of pretty smooth and he's in good form leading up to the race for Saturday, for sure. What did you make of the Saudi run? We went there with great expectations because he'd won the race the previous year. What, what went wrong? Yeah, he didn't... Um, obviously very disappointing. He was beaten a long, long way out. Um, the pace was obviously pretty fierce early doors and probably sat possibly in, in hindsight probably handier than maybe we should have been considering this such a strong pace when when you see the winner coming from out the back in 16 wide like it was but um, look he didn't run his race for whatever reason um, I know Mr Gosden said he might have got a clump of dirt um, down his airwaves and that's why he stopped so um, look for whatever reason he didn't run his race I knew it wasn't him so I stood up on him and, and looked after him look there was prize money down to 10th to place but it, it's all about the future with this horse and it's not all about one day he's got a long season ahead and uh, hopefully because of that he can bounce back and we know he can he's bounced back many times before and I'm sure he can he can do it again how does he feel to you to ride at the moment? Does, does he feel any different to how he did 12 months ago, 24 months ago? Does he does he, does he he seem to be moving well and in good nick? Yeah, he's in great nick. You have to think now he's obviously taken on these young, mature and three-year-olds. He's a five-year-old colt um, at, at the top level. Um, you don't get many of them around kind of these days. And physically, he's... He's had his physical peak now, I would say. He's thick, he's a um, lovely mover. He's a horse with a very uh, noticeable head carriage, which probably makes him stand out to the rest of the field when he's gone in his races. He's got that low sort of nearly nearly hitting the grass with his nose. So, um, no, he's in great form. Um, and hopefully this run in the Eclipse, which is... A very, very strong race, as we all know, but it'd be nice to see him back at the top level and see how he fares out with the with the young three-year-olds coming through, along with the sort of the top-class individuals in, you know, Baybridge and Real World and Alan Carr and the likes. It'd be nice to see them sort of come up against them again. I mean, John Gosling last year, he made no secret of the fact it was a building block, and really they, they were trying to get him to peak for the Judmont International, which which happened and it works, and he ran a fine race in the King George as well. Do you see it very much following the same pattern, or do you think he is readier this time to to, to perform nearer to his best on Saturday? Um, yeah, I felt he, he did, as said after last year's run in the Eclipse, he did get pretty tired up there. He travelled into the race like the winner almost, and 
had St. Mark's Basilica sort of under pressure first and for a few strides, myself especially, thought it was it was sort of our race to win and just that last furlong and a half up the hill just caught him out um, eventually finishing third obviously but I think this year um, he's had a nice preparation into the race, he's been working well, he seems fit and well so um, obviously you'd expect him to take a step forward for that but I'd um, he definitely seems as good as we can get him at this stage of the season for sure Thanks David, thanks to all my guests today Jane Mangan has a tip for me Yes, I'm going to Tipperary I'm keeping it local in the 640 inch Quinn Starford, David Marnan and Wayne Lorden. Been a bridesmaid on a number of occasions. Hopefully tonight he'll get his time to shine. Jane, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. My thanks to Rishi yesterday, who supplied us with a 10 to 1 winner on the podcast. More of that next week, please, Rish. I uh, hope you're enjoying the coverage of Wimbledon as well. Uh, we will see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.